to learn who rules over you, simply find out who you are not allowed to criticise. You are listening to ACHR Nandy, your host. Today is Thursday, so I'm delighted to welcome back for his weekly visit our good friend, Dr Peter Hammond. Peter, are you with us? Yes, I am. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you so much, Peter. And folks, I've been looking forward to this since uh, yesterday when Peter emailed me his suggestion for the title and topic of our show, and that is The Real Lessons to Learn from the Ukraine War. So, Peter, where would you like to start us off today? Oh, Andrew, there are so many lessons to learn from this Ukraine war. What an avoidable one. I must say, as a South African who was brought up in Rhodesia, it seems awfully reminiscent. It seems deja vu to hear all this barrage of propaganda, you know, totally one-sided and where the enemy is portrayed as a one-dimensional thug. And uh, you know, how many times have we heard this before? And I've gone through this and having been in eight wars uh, over the years, it um, really seems to me that the chance that you get totally demonizing the one side and without any regard to understanding the chessboard from the other side, that's not wise. And the globalists have been planning to stage a great collapse as a prerequisite for the Great Reset. And with rising resistance to this dragged out pandemic, panic propaganda, the military conflict in Ukraine is now being presented by corporate media as unprovoked aggression. However, from the Russian perspective, it's actually a logical reaction to deliberate, very deliberate provocations by the Biden and Obama administrations. And Biden's administration has created this crisis to deflect attention from serious political failures at home and to create a scapegoat for the great collapse, which the New World Order is so committed to. So the immediate cause of this crisis, this war, was President Biden's sudden, arbitrary, unilateral push to integrate Ukraine into NATO and placing anti-Russian armaments close to the Russian border. And this has been the political, geographic and diplomatic equivalent of the Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962 when the Soviet Union attempted to establish military bases in Cuba, which could threaten America. And America at the time, uh, quite rightly, went ballistic and uh, went all out threatening even nuclear war if um, Russia did not pull their bases and their nuclear weapons out of Cuba immediately. And uh, as the Americans point out, this was a violation of the Monroe Doctrine, which for something like almost two centuries has guided American foreign policy. In fact, even President Trump said the Monroe Doctrine is as relevant today as it was when it was first written. And the Monroe Doctrine is basically no European powers allowed to interfere in the Western Hemisphere, meaning North and South America and Central America. And uh, Cuba was considered a part of the American hemisphere, sphere of influence. You're not allowed to put any kind of uh, military threat to the United States in the Western hemisphere, sorry. So as Russia has pointed out on numerous occasions, America trying to integrate NATO into, uh, uh, integrate Ukraine that is into NATO is the equivalent of the Cuban Missile Crisis 1962, it's just reversed. Now, Ukraine has been used and it's been abused by the US State Department for very nefarious New World Order objectives. Ukraine didn't ask for this. The European powers didn't ask for this. In fact, back in 
2013, 2014, Germany strongly warned against this potentially disastrous consequence of the policy of absorbing Ukraine into NATO. And we need to bear in mind uh, that Russia tried to join NATO on previous occasions. So uh, this, this may be one of the first big lessons to learn about this. What an avoidable war. Back in 1991, Russia sought affiliation with NATO as the Warsaw Pact collapsed, as the Soviet Union collapsed, as the white, blue and red flag of Russia replaced the old red flag with the hammer and sickle of the Soviet Union. Uh, right then, Boris Yeltsin was already seeking to join the uh, North Atlantic Treaty Organization. And what was then created in 1991 was the North Atlantic Cooperation Council, which Russia joined. And in 1994, uh, Russia joined a Partnership for Peace program, which uh, NATO and Russia signed several important agreements on cooperation. In 2002, Putin came through to a NATO summit and signed the details and plans for the Russia-NATO Council as a step towards Russia becoming a full member of NATO, handling security issues, joint projects. And so cooperation between Russia and NATO began already in, 19, uh, in 2002, formally with Putin taking initiative and this included fighting terrorism, military cooperation, cooperation on Afghanistan. Do you know during the Afghan war, Russia not only allowed NATO to fly over the territory, non-military assistance, uh, but actually helped fly in also under the International Security Assistance Force, fright and fighting against the local drug problem in Afghanistan, industrial cooperation, weapons, non-proliferation. So Russia was an ally of a sort uh, providing important logistical support even for NATO's operation in Afghanistan. In 2014, NATO unanimously and uh, on its own suspended all practical cooperation with Russian Federation uh, in response to Russia's annexation of Crimea. But the NATO-Russia Council was not suspended. And the, Russia continued to uh, seek full membership in NATO but in October 2021, just last year, NATO expelled eight Russian officials from its Brussels headquarters, which effectively suspended Russia's mission to NATO. So bear in mind that Russia has been trying to be a member of NATO, but has been rebuffed all the way along the line. And they were strung along various agreements, but not allowed to be a full member. Imagine if Russia could be an ally of NATO. What a tremendous force that would be against Red China, North Korea, possibly Iran and so on. So instead of bringing Russia on side, which they plainly wanted to and made a lot of attempts to, there have been all kinds of provocative moves against Russia. In fact, NATO itself, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, which is the biggest military alliance on Earth, I mean, includes the whole of North America, Canada and the USA, UK, not just the whole of Western Europe, but a whole lot of Central Europe too, and some of Eastern Europe. And NATO now has 30 members. NATO has expanded tremendously eastward. So it's important for us to bear in mind that NATO has been expanding dramatically uh, into the East, even though when the Soviet Union was dissolved in 1991 and the Russian Federation was formed and the Soviet Union broke up into 15 different republics, Boris Yeltsin, and George H.W. Bush, uh, James Baker, and so on, other diplomats met and were assured that NATO would not expand one foot eastwards. And uh, NATO at that stage 
had um, 12 members and it's now got 30 members. And so a lot of countries that used to be part of the Soviet Union, such as Latvia, Lithuania and Estonia, are now part of NATO. The countries that used to be part of the uh, Warsaw Pact, uh, such as Poland, Hungary, Czech, Slovakia, Romania, Bulgaria, Albania, have all joined into NATO. And effectively, uh, Ukraine has been treated like a member of NATO. There's not only a vast amount of NATO weapons going into Ukraine, but NATO forces actually were deployed to Ukraine, uh, Ukrainian forces were deployed to Afghanistan under NATO, wearing NATO flags and carrying the NATO uh, emblem, even on the uniform. So uh, for Ukraine to say, well, you know, we're not actually formally a member of NATO, well, they've been part of NATO operations. And then for NATO to say, but there's no threat to Russia, NATO's purely defensive. Well, maybe it was once, but how do we justify the 1999 war against Serbia, which was not in any sense defensive, and which uh, at that time Russia complained about, uh, Boris Yeltsin was then a premier, and complained about this naked aggression against Serbia, bombing Orthodox Slavic Christians in uh, Serbia, basically to help Muslim terrorist jihadists uh, in Bosnia. It, it was not a justifiable war in any sense. It certainly didn't fall within the parameters of NATO. And how they ever got sucked into this, it seemed primarily in order to distract people from Bill Clinton's scandals uh, rather than any legitimate reason. Uh, so NATO was not fighting a defensive war in Serbia. And then what about the bombing of Afghanistan and occupying of Afghanistan, the bombing of Libya, the destabilizing of Syria. I mean, how do these things fall into NATO's orbit? So there's been a lot of that kind of nonsense. Um, also, as Russia has complained about over the years, the United States has been involved in sponsoring terrorists who are operating in Russia, uh, for example, Chechen rebels and others who've caused tremendous havoc and, and killed vast amounts of people, including schoolchildren, in hideous terrorist attacks and uh, they know, and it's exposed, this, these were sponsored and, and aided by the CIA. And these were Russian, uh, well, terrorists in the Russian territory who've caused a lot of havoc. So who is the aggressor here? And when you look at what NATO has been doing, expanding closer and closer into Russia, as uh, Putin well put it, he said, we have not moved our borders towards NATO. NATO has been expanding their borders towards us. And they've come into our front doorstep and they're uh, right in our backyard now. And uh, so they do have a point there that, in fact, Ukraine was a Russian ally. And yet in 2008, America expressed the interest in Ukraine becoming a NATO ally. And at that time, Vladimir Putin, as Premier of Russia, said, under no circumstances. And yet, uh, no, cannot be done and warned about that and that this would really upset the balance of power and this would not be acceptable. And yet in 2014, the United States government under Obama and Biden, who was vice president, and Hillary Clinton was secretary of state, they sponsored a revolution in Ukraine. There was the color revolution, the Median revolution, they called it. And uh, in this orange revolution or revolution of dignity, as some Western media called, they overthrew the democratically elected President Viktor Yanukovych, who was forced to flee 
uh, early 2014, and they installed a client state, a vessel of the United States, a, a State Department um, uh, client who very plainly is involved in huge amounts of corruption. Uh, you know, just think of how Hunter Biden gets paid millions for a no-show job in Ukraine, running Ukraine's gas companies on, how Biden himself could boast uh, that he managed to get the prosecutor general, the attorney general of uh, Ukraine fired in six hours. He said that he was not going to release the billion dollars of aid that was meant to come to Ukraine unless they fired this attorney general. And uh, then uh, quoting uh, Biden, he says, well, you know, SOB, uh, would you know it? Uh, within the hour, uh, there was the Attorney General fired, and all his audience are, are laughing and so on. Well, I mean, this this is a president-elect at that stage laughing about how he's able to get a Attorney General who was investigating the corruption of his son, by the way, in Ukraine, uh, get a sovereign nation to fire the Attorney General because he's actually involved in investigating the corruption of a presidential candidate's son in America. This is just outrageous. But anyway, bear in mind, many people died. Hundreds of people died in this revolution sponsored by the State Department, the CIA, to overthrow a democratic elected president in Ukraine who was a personal friend of Vladimir Putin and whose government was an ally of the Russian Federation. So... The Americans can't claim that this is unprovoked. They have been provoking and they have been involved and they've been putting weapons in Ukraine to such an extent that many of the Russian casualties in this conflict have come from British tow missiles, anti-tank missiles, and American Stinger missiles, which are extremely advanced and accurate uh, anti-aircraft weapons. So we we should bear in mind that uh, uh, Ukraine is not as sovereign a country as many people would would um, like to think, and uh, the West is not as innocent of this as they would like, and Russia has not tried to be an enemy of NATO, in fact, he's tried to join NATO, and he hasn't tried to be an enemy of Europe, he's, in fact, uh, been even seeking to help practically, and they did provide very practical logistical assistance, for example, Afghan um, operation with NATO flights overflying Russian territory in order to get to Afghanistan greatly shortening the route and helping with logistics on a whole lot of non-military things on, on the, the war against drugs. So we we should bear in mind that uh, this idea that you've got this completely unprovoked aggression, uh, this is not actually very helpful in the whole scheme of things. Because when you see how Germany has also invested much into the natural gas pipeline with Russia, $11 billion worth uh, for the um, Nord Stream 2 uh, gas, which would actually make Germany and many parts of Europe energy independent of America. And uh, some people are even suggesting that stopping this pipeline has been a primary objective of the Biden administration to avoid the influence of Russia increasing in Europe at American expense. Remember, providing cheap energy is absolutely vital for any economy. And so uh, undermining this is going to increase the price of everything. And so the, the sanctions being imposed right now are achieving a lot of goals of some very corrupt globalists. Well, setting up Russia and backing them into a strategic corner to essentially have no choice but to respond militarily was precisely what Obama, Biden, and Clinton as Secretary of State achieved in 2014 by sponsoring 
and encouraging and financing the mob violence in the streets of Kiev and the color revolution orange coup, which removed Ukraine's elected pro-Russian leader, replacing him with a client of the US State Department, who then rejected the economic alliance with Russia in favor of integrating with the European Union and NATO. Now, the Bible says in Proverbs 20 verse 3, it's an honor for a man to cease from strife, but every fool will be meddling. And Proverbs 26, 17 says, he who passes by and meddles in a quarrel not his own is like one who takes a dog by the ears. Well, that 2014 coup in Ukraine, especially as it threatened Russian interest in the Crimean Peninsula, was the geopolitical equivalent of if Russia had seized the U.S. Pacific Ocean naval base in San Diego and taken away from the USA. Well, USA could never have accepted that. And Crimea is the only warm water port uh, opportunity, Sevastopol and others in, in the Crimea, that the Russian Navy has, because their base in the Arctic Circle at Bermans and in Vladivostok on the Pacific Ocean are under ice most of the year, and therefore um, completely unable to use those harbors uh, in or out during the ice um, times during the winter. So plainly, Russia could not accept losing the only ice free port, and Crimea had always been Russian since they liberated it from the Ottoman Empire in the 1700s. In fact, Crimea has been Russian far longer than California or Hawaii have been American. And the vast majority of the population in Crimea were Russian and were uh, not only Russian demographically and linguistically and culturally, uh, but they voted in a referendum to uh, rejoin Russia. And we also need to remember the history here, that Ukraine and Russia have been integrated for a lot of history. And in fact, uh, Russia dates the conversion to Christianity in 988 AD, when Prince Vladimir the Great, also known as uh, Saint Vladimir, uh, commanded all of his people to be baptized. And this happened at Kiev. And so uh, we we actually have monuments, massive monuments, not only in Kiev, but also in Moscow. In fact, Vladimir Putin opened in 2018, a monument very similar to the one in Kiev uh, to Vladimir the Great or Prince Vladimir, uh, Saint Vladimir, uh, who in 988 commanded the Russian people to be converted to Christ with mass baptisms. And this was set up just outside the walls of the Kremlin, a huge, massive monument of Prince Vladimir holding up a large cross, a very large cross. And uh, this this was uh, just a recent 2018 uh, monument which Vladimir Putin personally initiated to have this set up to remind Russia of its Christian heritage and of its, and saying it, you know, the signpost, the beacon of light and hope, a direction for the future. And that, in fact, the Russian and Ukrainian people share a common bond, religiously, culturally, historically, linguistically. Um, there's a lot of similarities between Russian and Ukrainian languages too. Uh, they, they are related. So uh, the the coup in 2014 forced Russia to take back those territories that had been given to Ukraine by Vladimir Lenin. First of all, Vladimir Lenin put a huge amount of eastern Ukraine into the hands of, of Ukraine, even though it is majority Russian population, which is why when Ukraine had a, a coup sponsored by the West in 2014, and their first rules that they came out with, the first legislation came out with was abolishing minority language rights, uh, which meant Russian. <laughs> that was the minority language rights. So the Ukrainian parliament in the same month of the revolution, 
February 2014, abolishes minority languages rights for Russians and then denies the requests of Lahanch and uh, of um, Donetsk to, for autonomy. And so Donetsk and Lahanch, which had uh, easily 90% population being ethnically Russian, linguistically Russian, they voted to secede and they did. And then the West sponsored Ukraine to shell and bomb and attack the Russian majority people in these areas that had seceded and many civilians were killed there. And, uh, uh, you know, it's not fair to make it out that, that Ukraine is just the innocent party here. Uh, they have been doing a lot of aggressive things against the Russian minorities in the areas, but I, I can read letters from people in Ukraine on that just now. So but to protect Russia's strategic national interest, Putin had no choice but to reclaim Crimea and to also support those Russian majority areas in eastern Ukraine and the Donbass region that wanted to secede. Now, Barack Obama was president of America at that time, what Biden remembers as vice president. And Barack Obama had a pathological hatred for Putin, primarily because Putin was opposed to the LGBTQ agenda of Obama. And President Putin banned gay propaganda to children in Russia in a law in 2013, and he set up a series of um, uh, laws to protect children from any kind of a gay propaganda. And so uh, Barack Obama then set up a whole series of provocative threatening events like a row of dominoes to uh, provoke Russia, so it could then accuse Russia of aggression. Now, that Russian military aggression could then be used to restart the Cold War and justify American military intervention in Ukraine as a pretext for plundering it. And you could see this was the campaign. I remember being in America in 2014, 2015, when even at the Tea Parties, which were generally extremely um, patriotic, neocon, Republican type events, they were all just so keen to bomb Russia, go to war with Russia over the Crimea. And I had to remind them of when Britain and France got involved in the Crimean War back in the 1850s, charged the Light Brigade and all that, we were actually on the wrong side. Russia was trying to protect Christians being persecuted in the Ottoman Turkish Empire, and Britain and France were supporting the Muslim Turks who were persecuting Christians. You know, we were not on the right side, however brave the charge of the Light Brigade people may have been. And, of course, we're grateful for Florence Nightingale and all of that, but it was a terrible war and it was an unnecessary war, and we were on the wrong side, and bad things came out of it. And as a result, Christians suffered for, for many decades more of the worthless life of the Ottoman Empire before it finally collapsed uh, in the First World War. And uh, what a pity that we had not just stayed out of it. And so I got a lot of Americans not too happy when I wasn't thrilled that they should be bombing a country they couldn't find on the map. So this initiated a whole campaign of mafia-style piracy. Ukraine became a protection racket on a national scale headed by Vice President Joe Biden as the godfather and his son Hunter Biden as some kind of in-country enforcer, because while they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption. So as a direct consequence of the Obama-sponsored Orange Revolution coup and the immediate cancelling of minority Russian language rights and regions with an overwhelmingly Russian majority like Donetsk and Luhansk declaring independence from Ukraine, this triggered a civil war which ended in a ceasefire in August 2014, when the boundaries were roughly recognized by the Treaty of Minsk 2015. And yet since then, there's been ongoing 
shelling, artillery shelling by Ukraine, probably prompted by Americans, of uh, the Russian minority, uh, the Russian majority in uh, these now independent secessionist regions of the Donbass, Donetsk and Luhansk. And uh, of course, schools, civilians, um, Christians, churches, uh, women and children killed in these bombings. But nobody seemed to care in the West because those were Russians, you know, so who cares about them? And they they were demonized, of course. So uh, these secessionists, their cause for freedom and minority rights and language rights and so on were obviously not concerned. So when what needs to uh, be uh, remembered is that Russia sought from President Biden a guarantee that America would not put nuclear missiles in Ukraine. And Biden flat refused to give that guarantee as recently as January of this year, 2022. Will you guarantee that no American missiles will be put in Ukraine and Biden refused to give any such guarantee? So you just look at that. How can it be said that this is unprovoked? Putin's predictable decision was to formally recognize Donetsk and Luhansk as independent countries to enter into mutual defense agreements. And when those countries continued to come under artillery and rocket attacks from Ukrainian forces, that from the Russian perspective justified the current military incursion to these two states, including an offensive assault on Ukrainian airports, weapons and military infrastructure. Now, of course, in no way do I want to justify any aggressor and Russia has aggressed, uh, Russia has attacked, not just coming to protect Donetsk and Luhansk, but is moving, it seems, to try and change the government in Ukraine, which I don't like that idea. But then again, it's not like America hadn't changed the government in Ukraine before through the color revolution. Regime change is not right. The chaos caused by America going into Iraq uh, back in 2003 and how life is immeasurably worse, they destroyed Iraq for what? For weapons of mass destruction that we could never find there and uh, on, on the basis of a lie. So it's not like this hasn't been done before. But on this occasion, it would seem that after many warnings, Russia is determining to go in to change the government and to create a buffer state. They speak about a demilitarizing Ukraine. So that Ukraine will not be a threat or a, a NATO base or an American base uh, that can be a threat to, to Russia. And of course, when you're a buffer state, that's always a bit dangerous. You must always keep good relations with the um, the big brother uh, neighboring you. And Russia's got 10 times larger military on every scale and sometimes 20 times larger, such in the case of Navy. Um, and uh, therefore, it was would have been wise if Ukraine had maintained good, friendly relations with Russia. Uh, so right now, we've got uh, a situation where you should have a buffer state between NATO and Russia, and yet NATO wanted to go into that buffer state, Ukraine. And so now Russia is trying to reset things to keep the NATO threat away from there. And they've been warning since 2008 this would happen from the very time that there was the talk about expanding NATO into, into Ukraine. So now, <clears throat> with the world's attention riveted on Ukraine, the US media has blamed America's internal economic troubles and failings on the Ukraine-Russian conflict, although the internal economic troubles are more a result of Democrats' policies, Biden's administration, and of course, the ongoing lockdown lunacy, masquerade madness, salvation by vaccination, COVID cult, which has definitely caused havoc throughout the world. 
trillions of dollars of uh, destruction, actually. But the US elites now have a distraction and a scapegoat for their failures in the form of unprovoked Russian aggression. The first casualty in war is truth. And many politicians and journalists in America are beating the war drums and working up a patriotic fervor to rally behind the president, punish Vladimir Putin, support Ukraine, get involved in the war, and all of these different things. I mean, yes, okay, we, we understand uh, this is the way uh, propaganda works. And anyone who tries to advocate caution or try to explain the complications and the context of this conflict will be branded as unpatriotic traitors. The war has the potential to spiral out of control easily. It could easily involve many more countries in Europe and further field. I mean, just think how the assassination of the Archduke Franz Ferdinand by a Serbian terrorist in Sarajevo in 1914 quickly escalated into the great powers fighting and people who couldn't have found Serbia, let alone Sarajevo on the map, uh, were suddenly involved in this war and how much destruction came out of that. And this is what goes on. Uh, you could have, you had uh, one act by one country, and before you know it, uh, there are vast amounts of countries involved. And we should be praying for peace. We should be praying for sanity. Uh, and I really hope and pray that the negotiations being held in Belarus between representatives of Ukraine and Russia will get to a solution. But it is well to remember at this time, that the United States under Obama and Biden refused Russian President Vladimir Putin's proposals for Russian membership in NATO. They refused the proposals for a neutral and demilitarized Ukraine. They refused the restoration of minority language rights for Russians in Ukraine. They refused requests for autonomy in Donetsk and Luhansk. And most recently, they refused requests for guarantees that American missiles would not be placed in Ukraine. So we would hope at this time of tragic crisis and war that lessons could be learned, such as meddling in other countries and sponsoring revolutions and coups to topple foreign governments can have catastrophic consequences. Now, this is not just true for Ukraine. It's also true for Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, Syria. Meddling causes ripple effects, unforeseen circumstances, chaos and you just think of the millions of Muslim migrants that have flooded into Europe as a result of the so-called Arab Spring sponsored by the US State Department under Hillary Clinton and Obama's presidency that toppled so many stable governments in North Africa, created absolute chaos and brought the number of Christians in the Middle East from 15 million down to under 10 million, brought the number of Christians in Iraq uh, from an original uh, 2 million down to just maybe 100,000 now. Uh, the disaster uh, for Christianity in, in the Middle East and for democracy and stability in the Middle East, just catastrophic, and was caused by American meddling, toppling a stable government in Libya, bombing them, sponsoring the overthrow of a stable government in Egypt, being involved militarily in destroying a great stable country like Iraq, where Christians actually had tremendous liberty, bombing Afghanistan and occupying Afghanistan for basically 20 years. And of course, the civil war in Syria. I mean, these things really have catastrophic consequences. So one would hope people would be learning that. Violating agreements, such as the agreement for NATO not to expand eastwards, and ignoring warnings, such as Putin's been giving since 2008, can be disastrous. 
abolishing minority language rights for Russians in Ukraine and refusing requests for autonomy in regions where the Russian majority population was not wise. Continuing to expand NATO and the European Union eastwards, despite repeated warnings from Russia, was viewed as threatening Russia's strategic security. And it's amazing how many news reports ignore this, even though this is the obvious context. It's important not just to project our propaganda on a situation, but to try and learn what, how the other side feels and how they explain these things and how they see it, because it's not very intelligent to only see things from the perspective of one's own propaganda narrative talking points. Refusing the application by Russia to join NATO was, in hindsight, perhaps not the best policy. Isolating, enforcing sanctions and threatening Russia not only drove this potential ally away from the West, but forced them to make a deal with China, which must be recognized as the greatest threat to Western Christian civilization worldwide. Russia could be a powerful ally to counter the rising threat of red China, but instead alienating and demonizing Russia has not improved the security of NATO. American meddling in Ukraine has not improved the lives or security of Ukrainians. In fact, I'm sure many Ukrainians would just wish that the Americans had left well enough alone and that they would not be in the state that they're in right now. So uh, I've written to some of my friends in Ukraine, and I've got a number of friends there, including two missionaries that I know well. One missionary I've known for over 35 years, and he's been a missionary in, uh, Afghan in Ukraine for something like 18 years. And um, I've asked him about the situation, and uh, he has um, uh, said that as far as they're concerned, the people around him, this is not a war that Ukraine wants or that Russia wants. This is a war that the U.S. Biden administration wants, as has been working for. Remember, there's an American missionary in Ukraine. Uh, here's another uh, letter I had from a Ukrainian who says, I'm going to attempt to write out a summary so you can have this perspective as you're watching news. I think it's really important for you to have this info now rather than later as things are unfolding daily. In 2014, the Ukrainian government was overthrown, thanks largely to Western meddling in the country and rigging the outcome. The regions of Donetsk and Luhansk did not accept this turn of events and said they would not submit to the new government leadership, and that's when the war started. Kiev, with the help of millions of dollars of American military supplies, began a war against these two regions, brutally attacking not just the people in charge, but all the civilians too. My dad's cousin tells of buildings being burned with people inside them, soldiers breaking into people's houses, stealing and plundering, and worse, breaking their connections to gas, water, electricity, depriving them of food, smashing statues, monuments, crosses. This is what President Putin is talking about when he mentions the Kiev regime's genocide towards these regions in the Donbass, in other words, eastern Ukraine regions. This went on for months in 2014 and in 2015. After losing 15,000 lives, our people prepared for the next attack and actually fought them back, which led to the Minsk Agreement of 2015, when the Donetsk and Luhansk regions were promised to be left alone and allowed to be their own independent regions. Well, that did not last long, and soon the war continued. The leaders of Donetsk and Luhansk asked Vladimir Putin to save them from these globalists, and Putin has been feeding these regions while hoping that things would improve. So essentially, what happened two days ago, now that's speaking about last week, was Putin officially acknowledged Dinesh and Lahanch as independent republics, and the next day they were asked to help them to fight off Kiev. 
President Putin has publicly said he does not want to harm civilians and all the rockets have been targeted at military and strategic sites. He's pleaded with his soldiers on Kiev's side not to kill their brothers and if they lay down their weapons, they will be free to go home. He's not interested in killing or incarcerating them. My dad says there's a lot of Ukrainian soldiers surrendering and going home from Kiev's side. I think Ukraine will be asking for help from other countries because many of their own soldiers are actually laying down their weapons. So anyway, this is a quick summary. I hope it makes sense. Feel free to ask any questions and I'll try to get answers. And I then asked, are her father's cousins in the heat of the action? And her response is, they're in Donetsk right now and they're very happy. Russia's standing up for them. They tell horrific stories of how the Western side has been abusing them for the last eight years. And then she adds another comment. My father was born in Donetsk. My mother's Russian. My father's cousins in Eastern Ukraine so this is the perspective of our people in eastern Ukraine. So that's uh, a letter that I received just a couple of days ago. And another missionary from South Africa who's been in Ukraine, who's a very good friend of our family and mission and been through our mission, Great Commission courses. Uh, she writes that uh, the fighting in Kiev is high. Uh, many people are fleeing down to the region where we are, which is something of a refugee safe haven. And... Uh, We've given over our school, mission school and home to help people and more and more coming. Uh, we're trying to provide housing for these refugees and we're reaching out to these people and speaking words of love and peace to them, praying with them. We're not fearful because God is in control. There's rumors of electricity cuts and telecommunication outages. Our town area already doesn't have electricity. Petrol stations have had incredible queues of cars trying to fill up. Rows of people are standing at the ATMs to draw money. Many of the ATMs don't have any cash left. Products and stores are running out quickly. And due to martial law and road stops and, and uh, roadblocks, some products are not being brought into the more rural areas. Many people have taken emotional strain. We've seen a great increase in depression and suicidal thoughts. This is a spiritual war first and foremost. And so we need to communicate to the people the need for calm, and pray for God to destroy the darkness that's surfacing in so many people's lives and for time not to be wasted, that God will use the situation to transform this nation for the better, that believers will be strengthened, that spiritual renewal and revival will come to transform Ukrainians in their worship and in all their communities, that this nation will become a truly Christian nation, that this will turn all eyes and faces to the King of Kings. And I'm informed that Bibles have run out in all the shops and there's been a tremendous run on Bibles and many people are trying to find churches and pastors will explain to them how to be right with God. So this crisis is, of course, an important time for spiritual work. I mean, bad times are good for spiritual work. And we can only hope that as so many people are speaking so irresponsibly and uh, giving incendiary statements, that people would also consider the big picture here. And the big picture is that Russia and Ukraine are two of the largest Christian countries in Europe. In fact, according to Operation World, the largest number of Bible-believing, born-again Christians, evangelical Christians in all of Europe, number-wise, not percentage, is Russia. The second largest number of Christians in Europe is Ukraine. Third largest is in Romania. And so we should think in terms of love for our neighbors and to seek first the kingdom of God and to fulfill the Great Commission and not think of these countries as enemies, but as unfortunate victims of the globalist new world order who are trying to use them to bring about a great collapse so that they can use it as a prerequisite and pretext for a great reset. Back to you, Andrew.
Thank you, Peter. Yes, um, a couple of points. Um, the minority language rights thing. Yeah, and by the way, that was fascinating information. So well put together. Thank you for that. That's really, you know, tidied up a lot of things for me. And it's all in one place, folks. So please keep this show. And it's a great one to circulate. So you can see the background to this, what the real background is, rather than what the mainstream media uh, fake news will be telling you. Uh, minority language rights. Now, Peter, what I love doing, as you well know, is pointing out the hypocrisy of the Zionist communist regime that we live under, which disguises itself as democracy. Can you imagine what the mainstream media would say if someone in the West was to suggest, even suggest, they'd probably be prosecuted even for suggesting that, saying in England that people would only be allowed to speak English. What do you think that they'd say about that and the powers that should not be would say about it, Peter? Back to you. This, this is the thing that's so amazing. So, for example, in the Western world, you have minority rights. And, in fact, the majority who are mostly Anglo-Saxon Christians aren't dead. Effectively, your rights don't mean as much as the rights of, let's say, somebody who came from Jamaica or from Iraq. And, uh, however... In South Africa, for example, there are no minority rights. In fact, our government's got something like 114 uh, racial uh, laws to discriminate against minorities, uh, so that uh, minorities like my children, and you know, we're, we're a very small minority, white Africans, um, we're discriminated against on every level, every single level. Uh, it's uh, impossible to get a job in, in so many categories. It's impossible to get sponsored for sports and uh, many other things like that. Uh, so, you know, for example, each of my children have um, needed to raise their own money for everything uh, from studies to sports, whereas if they were uh, the majority uh, language uh, and uh, a race, then they would get uh, huge amounts of support. And so there are people who will get everything covered for representing the country in sports overseas and studies and so on. Uh, but that it's not so if, if you're a minority over here. So isn't it interesting that minority rights only work <laughs> um, uh, over in the Western nations, but uh, the moment you get to the Eastern nations, there's no minority rights. And um, and that's interesting that Ukraine should have done that, to have decided to discriminate against the Russian minority in Ukraine, which is not very clever, considering that there's huge parts of Ukraine which, where the Russians are actually the majority, even though they're considered minority in the whole country. So hypocrisy and double standards all around. Back to Andrew. Yes, thank you, Peter. And uh, the other point is, with all these attempts, starting with Boris Yeltsin and uh, the numerous attempts that Vladimir Putin made to join NATO, do you think that uh, they would have been permitted to join NATO if they were still a communist, atheistic state? <laughs> oh, yes, <laughs> almost certainly. The real objection, this is where the, the hypocrisy becomes so clear. There's so many people in the left and now let's just refer to the institutions here, you know, ABC, NBC, BBC, uh, CBS and so on, who uh, CNN, who were absolutely pro-Russian when it was communist. But the moment it threw off communism and started to become orthodox Christian and pro-family and pro-life, uh, then suddenly they hate it. Now, the very people who are dismissing Vladimir Putin as a KGB thug, well, if you, uh, and as a communist, well, if he was a still a communist or an atheist or KGB thug, 
they would probably be championing and singing his praises and calling for support and aid because that's what they did back in the days of Brezhnev and Khrushchev and Stalin. I mean, just think Lend-Lease, think of the billions and billions of dollars of high-tech weaponry and the tens of thousands of tanks and aircraft and weapons and the hundreds of millions of rounds of ammunition, the tens of millions of artillery shells and the vast amounts of things that were sent to Russia free when it was under Stalin. I mean, the West became the arsenal of democracy uh, actually bolstered the worst dictatorship on the planet that was crushing democracies and killing Christians. So historically, uh, going all the way back to Wall Street and uh, the Bolshevik Revolution, which Anthony Sutton authored, and uh, how uh, Leon Trotsky, or Levy Bronstein was his correct name, Leon Trotsky, the hero of the revolution, the uh, founder of the Red Army, uh, you know, when he left New York uh, from the Bronx to go, he left with millions, millions of dollars and gold and so on, and was able to immediately kit out an arm, even though he had done no work in, in America, uh, he managed to leave there with tens of millions of dollars because of the support of American bankers, and was able to ensure that the KGB, or they were then called the Cheka, uh, and the Red Army they had leather coats, they had the best of everything, they had armored trains, they had Rolls Royces, they had the latest in machine guns, they had the best weapons possible, and they were able to uh, outgun their opponents uh, during the Russian Civil War because uh, they were well-funded by the Bolshevik Revolution and uh, by Wall Street. So uh, we need to be honest historically and say that really, if Russia was still communist, if Vladimir Putin was still a communist party thug, he would be getting the support and they would have opened the doors wide because you can see that this is the standard practice. And unfortunately, this is not just true uh, for the Democrats in America. So it's true for the neocons too. Republicans and Democrats have consistently supported their enemies and betrayed their friends. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. And the other um, point worth raising is this recent thing, I say recent, it's been over the last few years, certainly under Biden, where countries have been denied aid that generally receive aid from the United States unless they agree to sign up to the LGBTQ agenda. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I've got more than thoughts on that. I've got hard examples. So uh, just take Uganda uh, and uh, Nigeria. Now, Uganda and Nigeria have very large Christian populations. In fact, uh, the largest number of Anglicans uh, in in the world are in Nigeria and Uganda. There are something like 20 times more Anglicans in church every week in Nigeria than there are in the whole of Great Britain and North America combined. Um, so there's a huge amount of Christians there, and their governments are very negative and hostile towards the LGBTQ gay marriage and so on agenda. And so in 2013, when... Uh, Obama made his Africa visit, his main message was the gospel of the LGBTQ gay marriage and so on, and he was met with solid resistance. Uh, one great quote uh, from the Kenyan president was, people who have ruined their own country should not presume to come here and lecture us on the way forward. And uh, that uh, 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 gay um, activities were perversion. It's not African, it's not Christian, it's not human, not even animals do it. And uh, so there was a complete total rejection of it. Well, Obama's reaction was to bring all kinds of economic sanctions and political pressure down to bear on Nigeria and Uganda in particular. And the result was that the Christian-led government of Nigeria was toppled 
And a Muslim dictator, a man who had been a military dictator of Nigeria before, the Muslim Buhari, um, won the election in Nigeria and was direct result of, of Biden's policy. So what happened was this. There was this huge amount of uh, Islamic terrorism. In fact, a thousand churches were attacked in a five-year period and 17,000 Christians killed in Islamic jihadist attacks by Boko Haram, which is an Al-Qaeda-affiliated terrorist group in northern Nigeria. And so, uh, and I've ministered in these areas, so I'm, I'm speaking from first-hand uh, experience and knowledge. So uh, it was then testified um, in the U.S., uh, American general testified before the Senate uh, Military um, Committee, uh, Oversight Committee, uh, that they had hard intel on the location of the Boko Haram insurgency and the location of particularly the hundreds of Christian girls who had been kidnapped by Boko Haram from a school and uh, where they were so that they could be, in real time, they could be rescued and the entire leadership of Boko Haram um, uh, decapitated, uh, to use his words, um, uh, neutralized. So the uh, general then testified that the, the highest authorities in the White House uh, forbade them to give any of this information uh, to the Nigerian Defence Forces, uh, with the result that the girls were not recovered and Boko Haram continued to be on a rampage, and as a result that the Christian government of uh, of uh, good luck Jonathan was um, lost in the election. And the key issue was bring our girls home or we will not turn out to vote. That the lowest voter turnout, uh, millions of Christians stayed away from the polls in protest because their government had done nothing effective to return the kidnapped girls or to neutralize the threat of Boko Haram. And as a result, this absolutely out of left wing, uh, ex-military dictator, can you imagine, uh, Muslim pro-jihadist gets elected president of Nigeria. So the largest nation in Africa, as opposed to country, speaking about the population, because Nigeria's population about 140 million. And so the largest nation in Africa came under the control of a Muslim who previously had been a military dictator as a direct result of US foreign policy, trying to punish Nigeria uh, because they would not implement the LGBTQ gay marriage agenda in Nigeria. So that just shows you just how passionately they believe it, that they they put gender pronouns and the LGBT gay agenda above national security. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. And uh, no doubt you're aware of the uh, famous video of... Um, Barack Obama being interviewed where he regularly refers to his uh, wife Michelle as Michael and I believe the actual yes. name is Michael LaVaughn Robinson and then we've also of course got the famous Joan Rivers video which I'm going to play now I haven't queued this up folks I didn't know that we'd get onto this subject so hopefully the sound will be loud enough let's have a go now and do you think that the country will see the first the United States will see the first gay president or the first woman well, we president we have it with Obama so let's just calm down got it no, Michelle is a trans. Uh, I'm sorry, she's a what? A transgender. We all know. Oh, my gosh. Oh, gosh. It's okay. So there you go, folks. And uh, funnily enough, uh, Joan Rivers, who used to make jokes about the amount of plastic surgery that she had, so she was no stranger to it, uh, two weeks after that was filmed, she died in a routine procedure, uh, which I found rather curious. Uh, Peter, any comments on that before we go? Oh, my. It's just horrific. Uh, this is the thing. Uh, people need to realize that the real scandals of what's going on behind the scenes is so horrific. I think the only way we can really understand all this is when we understand 1666 
and the Sabatan roots of the New World Order. And this is the point. A lot of the top people in leadership around the West, especially in places of major influence, like in Hollywood, are actually Sabbatans. Uh, they are um, following a Luciferian, occultic, anti-Christian agenda. And when we come to understand that, a lot of the policies of the West suddenly all make sense. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. And uh, just uh, back to you again for details of how people can contact you and where they can find your work. My personal email is peter at frontline.org.za. So peter at f-r-o-n-t-l-i-n-e dot o-r-g dot z-a or z-a. So peter at frontline.org.za, z-a being for South Africa or South Africa. And uh, our website is www.frontlinemission.org.za. So, sorry, frontlinemissionsa.org, frontlinemissionsa, SA short for South Africa.org. That's our website. You can find us on social media as well. Thank you, Peter. And uh, Peter also has other websites as well that are in the post for all our shows. And the show that Peter just referenced, which was extremely popular and Peter worked very hard on, we recorded it on a different day so we could get it as show number 1666. It's no longer on my website because I only carry the last months of shows. But there is a link as well in the post for our shows together. Peter carries his shows with me on his website at that link. So you can go there and you can listen to that 1666 show. If you've not heard it, then you'll have find some fascinating information in there. So I want to thank Peter so much for his excellent report the, um, on the, what's going on in Ukraine, which is entitled The Real Lessons to Learn from the Ukraine War. I want to thank everyone for listening. I'll be back with you all tomorrow. Until then, folks, have a wonderful day. And bye for now.